Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The word of the Lord. I have a proposal for you this morning, and the proposal is this. Whatever you believe about this world shapes the way you live in this world. Does that make sense? Whatever you believe most deeply about this world shapes most powerfully the way you live in this world. So what do you believe? Another way of asking it is this. What kind of story are we in? There's a diverse group of people here. We may have different stories we believe about the world, but every story attempts to answer the same basic questions. Questions like, number one, where are we? In other words, what kind of world is this? Is this world created by God, or is it the result of a random, unguided, natural process? Does this world actually exist, or is it more like the matrix, an illusion? Where are we? Question number two, who are we? Uh, What kind of beings are human beings? Are we created by God with dignity and purpose, or are we a highly evolved bag of chemicals? Question number three, what's wrong? Most people throughout history have had some intuition that something is amiss in this world. We have things like evil, injustice, and suffering. Where does that come from? What's wrong with the world? And of course, that leads to question number four, what's the solution? These four questions are the biggest questions we all have to answer, and whatever your answer to these questions is, that tells you what kind of story you're in. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Um, We spend a lot of time in our culture talking about solutions for the problems of the world, but the, the solutions we propose depend on how we answer these first three questions. The answers we propose, the solutions we propose, depend on how we answer these first three questions, especially question number three, what's wrong with the world? Now, we have a lot of medical people here. Um, What do you call it when you prescribe a bad treatment on the basis of a faulty diagnosis? That's called malpractice. (laughs) If, If you don't prescribe the right treatment, people could die. If we need the right diagnosis in order to prescribe the right solution or the right healing, what is wrong with the world? We have a lot of diagnoses out there. Few, if any, mention the Bible's answer, though, which is sin. And that makes sense. I mean, in our culture, sin is seen as being 
um, primitive and depressive, and there are good reasons for that, but what if um, uh, our understanding of sin is too shallow and too superficial? What if by ignoring sin, we're actually ignoring the one diagnosis that could actually lead us out of the biggest problems of this world and into true healing for the world? We're in a series on the book of Numbers. Numbers is all about what it means to follow God in the wilderness of this world. Now, this story we just read is a weird story. There's all these serpents killing Israelites, and Moses makes a bronze serpent to save them. It's a strange story. But it's also one of the best places to get a deeper understanding of the biggest problem facing our world, sin. So let's take a look this morning by seeing three things about these serpents. We're going to see the purpose of the serpents, the message of the serpents, and lastly, the remedy for the serpents, okay? First, the purpose of the serpents. Now, as we do every week, let's remember the backstory. Israel was enslaved by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, for 400 years. But then God rescued them from Pharaoh. Here in the book of Numbers, he's leading them through the wilderness into the promised land. But no sooner do they hit the road than the Israelites start complaining. In fact, the middle section of the book of Numbers, chapters 11 through 21, are a, a series of seven rebellions against God. This story we read is the seventh and final rebellion, and in many ways, it's the most confusing and most challenging. And one of the reasons is this. Notice that people say, there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, we have heard this complaint before. The Israelites are talking about manna, which is this flaky, dew-like substance that God gave them every day to eat. They're sick of it. They complain. So what does God do? It says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, listen. Are the Israelites being a bunch of whiny, ungrateful little turds? Absolutely. But God's response, I mean, does it just seem a little petty and vindictive? Kind of like, all right, Israel, well, if that's the way you're going to be, then I'm going to torture you with these poisonous snakes, neener, neener. On the surface, that, it would be easy to assume that, but if we check our assumptions and dig beneath the surface here, we find out there's actually a lot more going on. Remember, this is the seventh time that Israel has rebelled against God in the wilderness. They keep rebelling. God keeps trying to work with them, and they keep not getting the message. They keep not um, being in touch with reality. So if you're God, what do you do? How do you get the attention of people who aren't paying attention? Flannery O'Connor was one of the greatest fiction writers of the 20th century. She was also an Orthodox Christian who was deeply committed to her faith. If you're familiar with her, you know that she was famous for writing these outlandish stories that are grotesque and shockingly violent. They're full of really weird, freaky characters like serial killers and blind preachers and people missing limbs. And people would ask her, why do you write stories that are so shocking? She wrote an essay once in which she answered that question. She said, you know, as a Christian writer, a Christian writer looks at the world and sees many distortions, but the problem is she's writing to secular Americans who look at the world and don't see any distortions. To, to, to the world, it looks, the world looks at, at our modern world and, and everything looks familiar and ordinary. She said that in order to help people see the distortions, you have to exaggerate them. 
She said, if, if, if you can assume that people believe the same things as you, then you can use normal language, but if people don't believe the same thing as you, in other words, if they have a different story of the world, then what do you do to get through to them? She said, you have to make your vision apparent by shock. For the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. You know what God is doing with these fiery serpents? He's drawing large and startling figures for the almost blind. He's trying to get the attention of people who aren't paying attention. How? By showing them physically in their bodies a picture of something that's happening spiritually in their souls. How does he do that? Remember, these serpents, they're not just serpents. We saw that they are fiery serpents. This word fiery is the Hebrew word seraph, which means blazing one or flaming one. These fiery serpents are a picture of the fire that's devouring their souls. Now, we'll talk more about what that means in just a bit, but for now, here's the point. Sometimes God has to shock us awake to reality. Sometimes God has to jolt us with a picture of who we are and what we've become in order to wake us up and help us to pay attention to reality. The challenge for us is we live in a culture in which... um, we've lost any real sense of guilt and sin. In our culture, guilt and sin are not moral categories. They're certainly not theological categories. In our culture, guilt and sin are therapeutic categories. What do I mean? Um, In our culture, we say that guilt is is really just a subjective experience. And so, um, nobody denies that guilt is a real experience and that it can mess with your life, but we say it's subjective. In other words, even Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, who was also a very committed atheist, he said, look, guilt is one of the biggest problems that human beings face. The real question, though, is where does it come from and what do we do about it? Freud and many others have produced this modern uh, approach to guilt in our culture that says guilt is a subjective experience. It's not based on anything real. Maybe it's a primitive holdover from a superstitious religious past, or it's a hyperactive conscience, or it's a neurosis, or it's maybe it's a genetic code that helps our species to survive, but whatever it is, it's not based on anything real. It's, it's not moral failure. It's certainly not sin. In our culture, the solution to guilt, we say, is not that you need forgiveness. We say you need therapy. And yet, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up during the heyday of moral relativism. Everybody said, well, who's to say what's right and wrong? Those things don't exist anyway. We don't talk like that anymore. Over the last 10 years, we have seen a massive change in the way we talk and think about evil and injustice. And even if you're only in your 20s, you're old enough to have seen this happen in the last handful of years. You know what I'm talking about. We have never lived in a culture that is more hyper-aware and hyper-focused on evil and injustice and more committed to calling it out. The challenge for us, however, is that it's really easy to see evil and injustice in the world and in other people. It's almost impossible to see it in ourselves. We are always so ready to call down fire from heaven on other people, but we can't see the fire of hell in our own souls. We need something to wake us up to the reality of who we are and what we've become. Have you been experiencing any wake-up calls recently and wondered, hmm, I wonder if this is trying to tell me something. 
Friends, the purpose of the serpents is to wake us up to reality, to jolt us awake to see who we are and what we've become. But if that happens, then the next thing we need is the message of the serpents. What, what are these serpents actually showing us about sin? What, in the ancient world, you know, serpents were um, oftentimes a symbol of life and healing, but in the Bible, it's always a symbol of sin and death. So, for instance, in the book of Genesis, when God creates the first human beings, he puts them in the garden. It was a paradise. And God said, everything in the garden belongs to you. Everything. Just don't eat from this one tree. And, of course, the serpent comes into the garden to try to get them to sin. But how? The very first thing the serpent said was, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, the first thing, of course, is God never said don't eat from any tree. He just said don't eat from the one tree. But secondly, this word really is incredibly important. The great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that, that this is a sneer. This is, the serpent is being snarky. This is mockery. This is contempt. He's twisting God's word by trying to make it sound ridiculous. He's saying, did God really say that? It's kind of like my wife Jenny once went to the store to buy a birthday card, but didn't get one because they were too expensive. And when she told me how much they cost, I said, really? Not because I doubted it, but because I found it ridiculous. That's what the serpent is doing here. He's trying to make God sound ridiculous. He's trying to sow doubt in their hearts, trying to get them to doubt God's word, doubt God's trustworthiness, and especially trying to get them to doubt God's love. You know, the challenge for us is that, um, that this is one of the most important things that we could possibly see about sin. We are so accustomed to seeing sin as doing bad things. And the Bible says that is real. Uh, sin does include doing bad things. But, but if that's all sin is, then that's a, a, a shallow, superficial understanding of sin. What Genesis 3 is showing us is that the real nature of sin is not behavioral disobedience. Behavioral disobedience, disobedience always begins in relational breakdown with God. We don't trust God. We want to be in control of our lives. And the, the, the behavioral disobedience is simply the consequence of sin, but the root cause of sin is relational breakdown with God. I mean, think about it. If sin is just doing bad things, then if we just do good things, then we would have control over God, which is itself a failure to really trust God, which is just making the relational um, breakdown at the heart of sin in our hearts even worse because we've taken a trusting relationship and turned it into a business transaction. Hey God, I've done the right thing, now you owe me. I've pulled the obedience lever, out should come a treat for me. Now here's why we see this passage in Numbers is so profound. Notice two things about these serpents. First, remember they're fiery serpents. Not just serpents, but fiery serpents. The, the fire, this is an, the image is the poison of their venom is working their way, its way into their bloodstream and it produces a raging fever in your whole body. And that is a powerful image of what sin does to us. Your desire, our desire, my desire for control or comfort or security or pleasure or power or approval or whatever it is we desire most deeply is like a fire we can't put out. Do you ever find yourself doing things that are not just unhealthy but deeply harmful and destructive both to yourself and to others and yet you can't stop doing it? 
It's like a fire we can't put out. Friends, that's what sin does to us. Sin is not just something we do. It's a power, like, like poison in your veins. It's a power that does something to you so that it's not just, sin is not just something you do. Sin is something that does something to you. It's like you're in bondage. In fact, this would have been a very powerful image for the Israelites. Remember, they were enslaved to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Here's a picture of him, very famous picture. On his crown, do you notice, can you see what that is on his crown? It's hard to see. It's a cobra. It's a serpent. The serpent was a very potent image of the power of Pharaoh that kept them enslaved And for us, it's saying the same thing. The serpent is a very powerful image of the power of sin that keeps us enslaved. Sin is not just something we do. It's a power that does something to you. But secondly, what happened to the people who got bit? Notice it says they died. That means that sin is not just a power that enslaves you. Sin is also an enemy that destroys you. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, he puts both of these things together in a very powerful way. He says, you are slaves of the one you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul is picking up on the same idea. He's saying, look, sin is not just a, a power that enslaves you. It's also an enemy that destroys you. Friends, here's the big question that this passage is pressing into us. Can you see the sin in your life? Can you see the darkness? Can you see the poison working its way through your body, working its way through the, through, your, through the blood that's coursing through your veins? Can you see it? And even more importantly, how will you respond to what you see? How will you respond? There's a call to responsibility. You know what this call to responsibility is? In our culture, there's nothing we treasure more than this ideal of authenticity. We say the most important thing is that we all become our true, authentic self. You know what real authenticity means? At the heart of authenticity is that each one of us has a responsibility for who we become. We all have a responsibility for who we become. On the one hand, think about it, there's nothing more dignifying than that, but on the other hand, there's nothing more dangerous than that. We all have a responsibility for who we become, which means that our lives in this world are really more like a fairy tale than anything else. And by fairy tale, I do not mean a silly children's fable with pixies flying around. A fairy tale, real fairy tales are something far deeper and far more grave than that. And a fairy tale, a fairy tale is a place where there's real light and goodness, real beauty, but there's also real evil, real danger which means a fairy tale is a place of real transformation. And that your response to what you see, your authentic self gets revealed on the basis of how you respond to what you see. In a fairy tale, your authentic self gets revealed on the basis of how you respond to what you see. So for instance, Beauty and the Beast is the story of a handsome young prince who is also very proud and arrogant. One night, A powerful enchantress shows up at his door and offers him a rose in exchange for shelter, but she's disguised. Things are not what they appear to be. And because of his pride and his arrogance, all he sees is a dirty old beggar woman and he turns her away. And as a result, she transforms him into a beast until he can win the love of someone who is capable capable of seeing beneath the grotesque appearance on the surface of his life. His beastliness is the outward physical expression 
of the interior spiritual um, distortion in his heart. Friends, that is exactly what this passage in Numbers is showing us. Do you see the darkness? Do you see the poison? Do you see the sin? Do you see the large and startling figure that on closer inspection turns out to be yourself? And even more importantly, how will you respond to what you see? We've seen the purpose of the serpents. It's a wake-up call to show us who we are and what we have become. But the message of the serpents is this message about sin. It's not just a power that enslaves. It's also an enemy that destroys. How will you respond to what you see that leads to our last point, which is the remedy for the serpents? Now, remember what we've been seeing all the way through Numbers. The people complain. God keeps trying to work with them. They keep not getting the message. But in this story, God sends the fiery serpents, and this time, amazingly, they get it. Notice what they say. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Now, notice what's going on here, or really what's not going on. There's no rationalizing what they've done. There's no pontificating on whether it's right or wrong. There's no excuse-making. There's no blame-shifting. This, cl- this is repentance. This is honesty. They're being honest about what they've done. They're owning it, and they're asking Moses to pray for them. But even more amazing is what happens next. It says, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, which is a, a bronze serpent, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Now, remember, the serpent is an image of sin and death. Now, this is kind of weird. God is saying, look at this image of the thing that's killing you, and it will save you, which is kind of weird. It's kind of counterintuitive until we realize that he's not just telling them to look at this serpent. He's telling them to look at a serpent that's been impaled and hoisted up, lifted up for everyone to see. It's kind of like a snake hunter came into the camp killed a snake, put it on a pole, and hoisted it up for everyone to look at it. So when you look at the snake that's lifted up, what you're looking at is the defeat of your enemy. You're looking at the defeat of sin. It's the very death of death itself. And all they had to do was look. Just look. Look and live. And that word look is a word that really means to gaze, ponder, consider, meditate, allow yourself to become absorbed with what you see. Just look. And by the way, notice also that the remedy here is not something that keeps people from getting bit. You're already bit. You're already under the power of sin and death. The poison is already working its way through your veins, and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. All you can do is look. Look and live. That's all they have to do. Look and trust God, friends. That's the point. The point is not about looking to yourself and what you can do. It's about looking to God and trusting in He, what he has done, that he has defeated your enemy. He has given you new life. Friends, you realize this is the gospel. All the way back in the Old Testament book of Numbers, which is supposed to be all about this God of wrath and justice and law, we see the gospel here. The gospel is not, hey, here are all the good things you have to do so God will love you. It's, hey, here's what God has already done because he loves you. All they have to do is look and live. But here's the thing. There's probably no way that the Israelites or even Moses could have understood everything that's going on here. They simply just had to trust what God was telling them. But we have something that even they didn't have. Centuries later, Jesus Christ was having a conversation with a Pharisee, a fellow named Nicodemus. 
Pharisees were highly educated, highly respected religious leaders. And Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, but he said, Nicodemus, all of your religious good works and all the religious things you do, none of that can get you into the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus was like, what? Jesus said, no. Like, what you need is not more good works. What you need is spiritual transformation. How does that happen? You know what Jesus told him? He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you remember how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? That's me. You remember how all the people had to do was look at the serpent, look at the defeat of their enemy, and they would receive new life and spiritual transformation? That's what God is doing through me. What does this mean? The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, God made him, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It says God made Jesus to be sin. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus was sinful. It means that on the cross, the perfect sinless son of God was treated like he was a sinful human being, so that sinful human beings like you and me could be treated like sons and daughters of God, perfect sinless sons and daughters of God. Jesus became sin for us, so that when Jesus died on the cross, when he was put to death, we were set free from the power of sin and death. When Jesus was impaled on the cross and hoisted up for everyone to see, sin and death were impaled on the cross and their defeat was hoisted up for all the world to see because when Jesus took that raging, scorching fire of our sin inside of himself, when he took all of the justice that God poured out on the evil of the world inside of himself, Jesus quenched it all by absorbing it all in himself. You know what the cross is? The cross is is the largest and most startling figure of all. It's what God uses to shock us awake and give us new life. You know, we put crosses on jewelry or we hang it up in our home as a decoration. But in the ancient Roman world, crucifixion was so degrading so shocking, so shameful and scandalous. It was so utterly degrading and grotesque that people wouldn't even talk about it. They wouldn't even mention it or acknowledge it. So that when God says, look and live, you realize what he's saying. You realize what he's inviting you to look and pay attention to. He's saying, the cross is crying out, look, pay attention. Look at the horror. Look at the degradation. That is the state of your souls. But the cross also cries out, look, pay attention. Look at the grace poured out. Look at the sacrifice God made for you. That is the wonder of God's love for you. And all we have to do is look. Look and live. Some of us may be asking, okay, that sounds great. What does that mean? How do I actually do that? The answer is you're already doing it with something else. You just have to learn how to do it with Jesus. In other words, you're already looking to something for life. Something has already captured your attention, your wonder, your, um, your love, your worship. You're already looking to something for life, and you spend hours every week, maybe hours every day, consumed with longing for it, absorbed in it, and it shapes the way you live in this world. It shapes who you are. You're already looking to something for life. Um, 
looking to Jesus for life, learning to grow in the life that Jesus gives means that you learn how to steal time away from those other things you look to and begin giving that time to Jesus, that you begin looking to Him, that the same thing you do with all the things you're so consumed with in this world, you do that with Jesus. You become absorbed with Him. What does that mean? Well, you're part of what what you're doing right now. Come to worship once a week. But you think about it, an hour and 15 minutes once a week isn't really enough to offset the 167 other hours of the week that you are being totally shaped by everything that's going on in the world. But we come here to worship because it's a way of being shaped in the story. It's a way of looking at Jesus. But in other ways, maybe you get in a community group once a week and you spend time with other Christians looking to Jesus, talking about him, talking about what he's doing in your lives and in this world. It shapes you. Maybe another way is you gather with other people and you go out into the community and you serve your neighbors in the name of Jesus. That is a powerful way of looking at Jesus. Or maybe you set calendar appointments on your device to spend 5, 10, or 15 minutes a day with Jesus, maybe at regular intervals throughout the day. You know, you put appointments with important people on your calendar. Why not do that with Jesus? Or um, maybe you're exploring faith, or maybe you're skeptical about Jesus. What would it look like for you? Well, maybe you um, read one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life all the way through. Have you ever done that before? And maybe you get together with a Christian friend and ask them to help you understand what you're reading. Reading the gospels is one of the most powerful ways to look at Jesus and to see who he really is. But friends, wherever you're at, whatever you do, look to Jesus. Look and live. You're already looking to something for life. Look to Jesus and live. We we can't get enough of that vision. We need that vision in our lives constantly. G.K. Chesterton once said that we all live under the same mental calamity. We have all forgotten our name. We have all forgotten who we really are. The Israelites in the wilderness forgot. And they needed Moses to lift up the serpent in the wilderness to shock them back awake to reality so that they could find life in God. We're deaf. We're blind. We need large and startling figures to wake us up to reality and help us live. Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that he could wake us up to reality and give us new life. Are you awake this morning? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you living in Jesus? Let's pray. Abba, we praise you this morning for your care for us, for your kindness to us, for your mercy to us, that you are not content to leave us in our blindness, to leave us in our sleepiness, but you come and you wake us up. Thank you for the wake-up calls you send in our life. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to pay attention to the ways you're trying to shock us awake to reality, and we pray even more that you would help us to become the selves you have called us to be by responding to what you have showing us, by responding to Jesus, by looking to him, lifted up, and dying so that we might find freedom from sin and death and find life in Jesus. Father, help us this morning to look to Jesus, to find life in Jesus, and to trust in Jesus. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.